creature of the night. Who are you who interrupts my nightly feeding? I am Peter Vincent Vampire Killer! Welcome to Bright Night for Real. This is Now Playing's Fright Night Retrospective Series. Let's talk about blood, Mr. Benson. Hosted by Brock. You know, he is insane. I do hope he's not trying to be old. Arnie. There are no such things as vampires, fruitcake! And Stuart. Kill me before I turn into a vampire and give you a hickey! What am I gonna do? What are you gonna do? Not me. You know how to use your lips, Charlie. Join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for a new installment in this series, culminating in a week of release review of the remake of Fright Night. I've seen all of your films, and I've found them very amusing. These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. Listener discretion is advised. I warned you. I warned you. Welcome to Fright Night, starring Chris Sarandon, William Ragsdale, Roddy McDowell, Amanda Bierce, Stephen Jeffries, Jonathan Stark, and directed by Tom Holland. This is Brock, co-host of Now Playing. (laughs) You're so cool, Brockster. <laughs> yes, yes, I am. <laughs> this is Stuart in LA. How can I top that? There's just no way. Nope. This is Arnie, and man, am I excited we are talking Fright Night. I'm kind of surprised that we're going to be talking about Fright Night in all of Now Playing. I never figured we would talk Fright Night, and I'm happy to talk Fright Night, if not a little skeptical as to why we're talking Fright Night. Well, we're talking Fright Night because they're, of all things, remaking this. I mean, that's so unlike Hollywood to remake movies from the 80s. I can't in 3D? Who would have thought that? Unbelievable. Okay, but who would have thought Fright Night? Honestly, of all the properties to resurrect, Fright Night. I'm glad that somebody in Hollywood has the affection for this film lingering that I have, but it seems a little obscure. It's not a huge hit, but it did make $25 million, which, of course, small change now. If the new movie makes that, it'll be called The Flop. But I do feel like its cult appeal and its influence is much larger. I feel like if you watched horror movies in the 80s, you got to Fright Night, probably, and you probably have some affection for it. I do feel it's beloved, and more to the point, I don't feel like it's so perfect that they couldn't improve upon it, or at least tweak it a bit. I never got the proper... Fright Night sequel, I'll just go ahead and say this, that I wanted, so I'd like to see it. And I'm all about this if it's done well, but I suppose with the current vampire mania sweeping the nation, there's feels like it's been sweeping the nation for 12 years or more now, but with Twilight and everything, it seems like maybe they're just going back to every property. I don't know, though, why they do this. It seems like Lost Boys, which comes a couple years later, has a lot more cachet in the name than Fright Night. Hell, if Tim Burton is going to redo Dark Shadows, that cheesy vampire (laughs) soap opera from the 70s, then anything with fangs is game. 
and they did Lost Boys are still doing direct DVD sequels, as you well know. Arnie. Yes, which is why I keep saying they should remake Lost Boys, reboot the fucker. <laughs> All right, but Fright Night. Right when I started getting into horror in '87, this movie was one of the big gateway drugs. I am just so happy to be here. <laughs> Great. Probably no surprise to anybody on this podcast. I have not seen this before. Although I do know it existed, that poster, that video box was always in that store, you know? And I would see that, I'm like, that must be a really scary movie, because that's a really creepy poster. But I am coming in completely cold, not knowing a thing about it, except vampires, before walking into this movie today. There are no such things as vampires, fruitcake! I'll just do this all day. <laughs> I, just, I, just, I was going to ask you, every time I speak, you're going to say something after? Okay, <laughs> You're going to be Evil Ed, apparently, the whole show. Yes. I was Evil Ed growing up. That's what you got to get, is that was me, just not quite as ripped. Oh, I got it. And often. (laughs) (laughs) You weren't a frog brother, you were Evil Ed? Pretty Pretty much. much. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't have the cool inflection and voice, though. Man, Stephen Jeffries. We'll get to it. Actually, Fright Night's pretty special to me, too. It is the first time that I saw an R-rated movie in movie theaters without parental guidance. Ooh. We, me and my pen pal met and snuck in here and saw Fright Night on our own. I don't remember what we were in the theater supposedly to see, but we saw Fright Night and it scared the bejeebus out of us. It really was a tremendously entertaining, scary, funny experience. And I watched Fright Night repeatedly and became a big fan to the point that I collected the comic book. There was a short-lived comic book. I'm not even a comic book guy. But I collected the comic book, and I couldn't wait for the sequel to come out, and it never did in Springfield. But we'll (laughs) talk about that at some other time. But big fan as well, Arnie. I don't remember you being a Fright Night fan. That's the weird thing. This was after I moved away, and you and I kind of lost touch. Ah, yes. Lost Boys had come out that summer of 87. I was really deep into horror in 87. And this was before there was Fox Network. There were channels that actually showed movies. And late at (laughs) night, they'd show them unrated. And just like local stations. And for Halloween, they did a series of movies. It was where I saw Psycho for the first time. And one of the nights, they showed Fright Night. And I just, because I was into horror, watched every one. But this was my favorite. I ended up taping it and watching it till the tape ran out. I bought the record. I mean, I the Jay Giles band loved this movie, but I didn't know about the comics. I did know about the sequel. It didn't come to my town either. I remember the ads, though. I eventually saw that on video. But this is honestly a movie that I'd forgotten about for a while. I did revisit it a couple years ago to see if it was as good as my memory and then watched it again for this retrospective. But I can't count the number of times I saw this first one. Agreed. And you bring up something very interesting when you mention Lost Boys, is that that movie and a whole host of other movies did come out between 86 and 87, but this was the first. The vampire genre was more or less dead when this rolled around. I mean, I think we can honestly say, for the most part, vampires were uncool. Hard to imagine in this day and age, where they're on everywhere. TV, movies, you name it. Pinned up on schoolgirls' lockers. But they are, in 1985, as uncool and unavailable as any horror character could be. I mean, as Peter Vincent mentions in the movie itself... Today's teens would rather watch some maniac slash up a virgin than they would watch an old-fashioned vampire. They were passe. And I did a little bit of digging, and it looks like the last big vampire movie before Fright Night was Love at First Bite, which is another movie I watched so often as a kid. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's what vampires had become, is biting the girl and being called kinky and then going out to disco. Yeah, 
And just a couple months after this one came out kind of a competitor in the horror slash comedy, Jim Carrey's Once Bitten. Oh, I saw it. I remember hoping it to be another Fright Night and realizing very quickly that it wasn't. Damp, don't forget about Grace Jones and doing the Keith Haring dance and... Uh, you know, they, they all tried. You know, Nick Cage had one where he thought he was a vampire and wasn't really, but kept killing people and biting <laughs> them with plastic things. And there was a lot of corny comedy horror vampire combos going on. But I actually went back because I wanted to see vampire movies at the time. I watched Once Bitten Again. I'll be posting my review this week on Facebook and Twitter because oof, oof. It's that good, I, huh? <laughs> it's really going for the same thing Fright Night is with that mix of horror and comedy, but while Fright Night skews a little more towards horror, once bitten with Jim Carrey and his early film role, really skews towards comedy. And if you want to see kind of the mirror, mirror universe of what Fright Night could have been, once bitten is like the really bad version of Fright Night. And that year, I saw him once bitten in theaters instead of this, so I'm, I made a bad choice. I watched it when I was 10. I actually watched Once Bitten when I was 10, and I kind of dug it when I was 10. I have not seen it since, and I wonder. I wonder. You know, I got to say, the movie's totally different now that I know about oral sex. <laughs> <laughs> I'm intrigued, sir. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I'm convinced the only reason we even have this movie is mostly because of the great makeup effects work that had been done in American Werewolf in London and Michael Jackson's Thriller. This was the movie that took what was going on in the werewolf genre and applied it for the first time to vampires. We had never seen vampires before be so graphically transformed. I mean, before it was just a dude with fangs and maybe he's got a widow's peak. But now they're actually applying the 80s special effects technology and putting it to vampires and seeing if it's going to stick. I think you're right, but I think there is one other influence here, and that would be Ghostbusters. Absolutely. Columbia mm -hmm. Pictures made this movie. They made Ghostbusters the summer before, and that was the first movie to show that mass audiences would turn up for a movie that's funny and scary-ish. A horror comedy. It was a new genre in the 80s, and I definitely feel like this was a part of it. So, Arnie, you want to set us up with a plot summary? Sexually frustrated high school student Charlie Brewster, no relation to Punky, is about to finally get into girlfriend Amy's pants when through the window he spies an unusual sight. His new neighbor Jerry Dandridge moving in, carrying a coffin. Charlie continues to notice strange occurrences, such as a number of prostitutes visiting his new neighbor, only to then turn up on local TV as murder victims, which leads Charlie to the logical conclusion, his neighbor's a vampire. <laughs> He starts to investigate Jerry, including calling the police, but he's thwarted by Jerry's roommate and houseboy, Billy Cole. And then Jerry himself threatens Charlie and his mother if Charlie continues to blab. When the police, Amy, and even his horror film fan friend, Evil Ed, don't believe him, Charlie turns to the only place he can. Vampire film star come horror film host, Peter Vincent. And when I say horror film host, think Elvira or maybe a little bit of Rhonda Shearer from USA up all night. Of course, Peter Vincent laughs off Charlie, too. Charlie takes it upon himself to stake the undead, but Amy and Ed bribe Peter Vincent to stage a ruse where Peter will give Jerry a vampire test. Jerry will pass and Charlie's mind will be put at ease. 
But during the test, Peter sees that Jerry indeed doesn't cast a reflection, and his confidence in the fictitious nature of vampires is shaken. More, Jerry is taken with Amy, who has a strong resemblance to a woman from Jerry's past, and as Ed and Charlie walk Amy home, Jerry attacks, turning Ed into a vampire, and then begins to seduce Amy at a local dance club. When bouncers try to stop the vampire, blood is spilled, and in the chaos, Jerry escapes with Amy, leaving Charlie alone. Charlie goes back to Peter Vincent for help, and Peter, now fully convinced after being attacked by Ed, so the pair arm up and go to Jerry's house to rescue Amy. Peter fights and kills Ed, who turned into a wolf, and then the two enter Jerry's house to find Amy has been bitten and is becoming a vampire. The fight continues throughout the house, and Billy Cole is killed with a stake through the heart, and finally, Peter and Charlie flood Jerry's basement with sunlight by breaking the windows Billy had previously painted black, and Jerry explodes in a ball of fire, returning Amy to normal. And as the film ends, we see Peter Vincent still hosting his show, though changing the topic from vampires to aliens, as Charlie and Amy consummate their relationship. But outside, we see the glowing red eyes of evil Ed, perhaps not as dead as he seemed, as credits roll. So there we have it. And I gotta say, from a plot summary, this movie doesn't sound that exciting. And I wrote the plot summary. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds pretty exciting to me because I totally related to Charlie. His world was my world. This was my life as a young teenager. And at the time that I watched Fright Night, I was doing all my research for horror movies at this time. This is when I watched every horror movie ever made from 1926 Phantom of the Opera to those hammer horror British Christopher Lee vampire movies that Roddy McDowell is clearly playing off of. I loved them all, and I loved staying up late and watching these cheesy hosts unspool them on late night TV. I thought it was great, and so I was into this world. I don't know. Does that make me a nerd? And is Charlie a nerd? I, that I don't know. I can't answer. But I bought it, and I was totally sold right from the get-go, right from the setup. See, I think Charlie's not a nerd. I think he's the everyman. There's nothing spectacular about Charlie. He's not particularly geeky or nerdy or anything. I mean, he has the horror movies on, but he wasn't really paying attention. He was more interested in Amy, whereas obviously Evil Ed was the outcast, you know, clearly the Fangoria reader. Charlie doesn't know the rules of vampires. He has to go to Ed for the clues. So while you related to Charlie, I related to Ed, reading Fangoria, watching the movies, the person people would ask when they needed to know the rules of vampires. I found it strange that he didn't know the rules of vampires because he's watching all those movies. Well, he's seeking advice. I mean, I think that he kind of knew the basics, but when you find out one's living next to you, you might want to know <laughs> specific. You might want to bone up, sure. I, I got yeah, you. Yeah, you, you I know you. what I mean? I, yeah. It can't be said that Charlie is the average guy. He watches this stuff. Peter Vincent is his favorite, as Amanda Beer's character points out. He is consumed by this stuff, and he does have these posters and things all throughout his wall. Arnie, I think you're wrong. I think he is a horror nerd. I guess you're right. I, I did notice the posters, but again, the going to Ed bit was what confused me on that. Charlie quickly won me on his side when he spoke up for himself about his girlfriend not putting out. And I thought a nerd probably wouldn't do that. A nerd, in my mind, would just go along with what she gives him. And in the 80s, a nerd wouldn't have a girlfriend, really. There you go. So, like, this guy, to me, he seemed like a solid guy. When he feels like he's slighted, he speaks up. And that instantly got me on this character's side in that scene. I'm wondering if they're trying to set up part of the conflict is they've been dating a year and they haven't had sex yet. Is part of the problem that he's so hung up on horror movies? They kind of imply that from time to time, but it's never overtly stated. Did you guys pick up on that at all? Do you think that the horror movies play a factor in his inhibited quality? Uh, no, no. I have seen this movie so often. What inhibited him was Amy. 
<laughs> Amy <laughs> was saying no. When the movie opens, Charlie doesn't give a damn what's on TV. The TV was on to distract the mother, you know? It was on his station, it was believable, but what he wanted was in Amy's pan. When Amy takes her top off, it wasn't Peter Vincent that distracted him, it was the guy outside the window with a cough fit. If he had been too into Blood Moon or whatever the Peter Vincent movie was, that would be one thing. But no, it was Amy kept saying no. I think Arnie's dead on about that. Also, she was turned on by the fact that he was going for it, too. So, no, the horror movie distracting anybody was Amy. Maybe she was pissed off. All she had to do was turn the damn thing off if she really wanted to. Well, no, I think she was using it to try to get out of sex. Oh, she was. No, I, I definitely agree with that. In that particular moment, in that scene, I'm hearing what you're saying. But in general, they seem to think that he's descending into his own fantasy about horror movies. And she's, on more than one occasion, leaves in a huff because he's paying more attention to them or is more obsessed with vampires than he is with paying attention to her. When the movie starts with a voiceover and it's it turned out to be the TV... I totally got faked out by that. I remember their famous line about wolves being the children of the night, and they did a play on that with the movie on the TV. Now, my question about this is, to you two, the movies that Vincent is showing on there, we see little clips, were those made specifically for this movie, or those actual B- or C-level horror movies that they just found footage for? It's a mixture. They definitely have some of these where they have McDowell in early age makeup playing the vampire hunter. That particular movie that introduces Fright Night is Blood Castle, is what he calls it. That doesn't exist. But okay. at times there are... Christopher Lee makes a cameo as a bat, and they do have footage that does come from old Hammer movies. So they don't cite which ones are which. They want you to believe in the reality of all of them, but a lot of them are fake. Okay. But what he sees out the window, neighbor Jerry Dandridge, played by Chris Sarandon. Our second Chris Sarandon appearance on Now Playing. Yes, Child's Play, who was directed by the same director, Tom Holland. That's right. Oh. This was the warm-up. This is how he convinced Chris Sarandon to go be in Child's Play. <laughs> and I gotta say, Chris Sarandon's a whole lot better here than he was in that movie. He's just got a lot more to play off of. I just think he's so much fun to watch. And so many of these characters, the supporting characters, really do kind of steal the show in Fright Night. I mean, Charlie's kind of boring, and maybe that's by design. But when you got someone like Jerry, you know, I, I love the business they always give him about eating apples. You know, he's always having these enormous bites into apples, like eating the cores and everything. He's always fiddling with apples. It's just it's a great bit of business. It gives him something to do. It gives him a menace, even in the most innocuous scenes. He's just camping it up here, and I don't think he's ever been more fun to watch than a Fright Night. This is his moment. I think Chris Sarandon was nominated for an Oscar Dog Day Afternoon, and certainly was good in Princess Bride, but I think this is my favorite role for him. I agree completely. This so outshines Princess Bride in every way. I mean, you mentioned the apples. He eats the cores. Yes. <laughs> the cores of the apples. Who does that? It must be a monster if you're eating the seeds. And I'm a huge Princess Bride guy, so I've only seen this one, so my favorite role of his, of course, is Princess Bride. I love his line readings in that movie, but I absolutely loved him in this movie, too. I think I'm right on board with you, too. He was so much fun to watch in every scene. He nailed everything. He ate apples so much, I was starting to wonder if, in the lore of vampires, if they need to eat apples for their skin or something. I, I was <laughs> questioning why, and it was just great that they kept on doing it throughout. It was like a running gag. It was great. If you go to iconsoffright.com, the DVDs for this film is bare bones, but they actually got the director and cast together to do commentaries for this, and it was Chris Sarandon's thing that he's descended from a fruit bat. Oh! oh. <laughs> Interesting! Oh, 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 oh. How great! <laughs> 
<laughs> so that was like his addiction to the character was all of this fruit. And if you notice, I mean, there's times where he's eating grapefruit. It's all kinds of fruit, but the apple is certainly the most noticeable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know that I ever would have picked that out. But again, that's an actor that's finding something not in the script and making it his own. We didn't need to know that to appreciate what he's doing. We just know that he's having fun tearing through the fruit balls. And his whole relationship. At times, I felt, did you get a little Jeff Goldblum off the guy? I didn't, and I've seen a lot of Goldblum, especially 80s Goldblum, and I did not get that. Goldblum, he's always that high-energy, kind of nebbish, and even when he's a Lothario, it's it, like in Big Chill, it still comes off just so high-energy. Here, what I got off Sarandon was pure swagger and just confidence and that gleam in his eye. I loved his coolness here. I can't say I got Goldblum, but it reminds me of nothing so much as this movie, maybe because I've been watching this movie for over 20 years. I think when Jerry's in a situation where he's trying to project normality, when they come over to test him, that's when I'm getting the Goldberg vibe. He is trying to play it like, I'm just an average guy, I'm just kind of a nerdy whatever. But yeah, then there's the other side of him where he's suave and dominating and debonair, and that's... The interplay that I enjoy watching, him bounce between those two personas. I wondered, though, as I was watching this, if Goldblum could have pulled this off as well. No. I don't think he could have done the menace, no. I think Arnie's dead on about the nebbish part of Goldblum. I always think of that nervous, kind of ticky kind of guy. Always, like, fumbling for the next word kind of energy that Jeff Goldblum Mm -hmm. has, even though he knows exactly what he's talking about. He's still kind of like a Woody Allen kind of thing there, too. Chris Sarandon had none of that here. He had cool. Also, when he was mocking the boy about him thinking he was a vampire, those kind of scenes were light and fun, and then he challenges him in the bedroom later, and he was like pure menace. He played all sides of it, and I never once got any sort of nervousness off him. He played it very, he played a deep character here. It was good. And really, this is Sarandon's film. Forget William Ragsdale, you know. This film is made and broken by Chris Sarandon and the fact that he does oscillate between menacing and charming and funny and sexy all in this one character and does it just so perfectly. Miscasting this role is to damn this film. And I would never think you need Chris Sarandon. (laughs) But in this case, yeah. And the reason we're doing this is leading up to the remake. Colin Farrell has that same kind of energy. I can see him pulling this off. I look forward to seeing him pull this off. Yeah, well, let's be hopeful, but Another thing that Sarandon brings, and maybe if you haven't seen Dog Day Afternoon, you wouldn't pick up on this, but he played Al Pacino's gay lover in that. And here, they kind of play off that for a little while, too. I think it's interesting that for a while, he has this housemate, Billy, who the mom is not even... (laughs) She's turned off. She's like, oh, he's got a living gardener. He's gay. I'm not even showing interest. They make you think that it might play that way, but ultimately, all his targets are beautiful women who he invites to the house. I'd never gotten the gay vibe until this viewing. Even when I rewatched this movie just five years ago, I didn't get it. But now I'm like, hmm, two thin, neat young men buying a house together in suburbia. Uh-huh. Yeah, not there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely think they were trying to go for that with this. Yeah, and you know, it's always been a part of vampire lore is that everything is charged with sexuality, and the 80s in particular, the, all that bisexuality. It was a big thing in a lot of vampire movies. Once Bitten, you mentioned. Vamp, the hunger. It comes up again and again. So I think Chris is right for that. He's hitting all the marks. To me, he is hitting a little nerdishness when he's trying to be every man. He is being suave. He is being sexually ambiguous. He's hitting all the marks, and most of the point, he's really, really funny. I just think that he gets that tricky balance that is so hard to hit 
when you're trying to make someone laugh at the same time you're trying to scare them. And with the bisexuality, when watching it this time, you know, for now playing, I watch movies on a whole different level. And so watching it this time, I'm like, why did he offer to let Charlie live? And the only thing I could get out of it was perhaps there's some kind of attraction there, honestly. That is the only reason I could get why he started off by saying, Charlie, I'll give you a choice. Oh, I didn't get that at all for the sexuality. I, I get everything you're saying about sexuality with this character, absolutely. But that choice scene, what I got from that was, if he killed Charlie, everybody would be on him, because Charlie's been talking about this guy. So, I didn't really think it was much of a choice. I thought he was just trying to scare him. I thought the entire time he was going to let Charlie live. Yeah, the choice wasn't, do you want to be a vampire? The choice was... Do you want to just forget this? Right, I, I I knew that. I believe you might be on to something more, though, not with Charlie, but more with when he turns evil Ed. We'll, mm-hmm. we'll get there when we get there. But that does have a charge to it that feels somewhat sexual. It, it's just, I guess, some of the interplay in these early scenes, some of the cat and mouse between Jerry and Charlie. And we've talked a lot about Chris Sarandon. Let's give William Ragsdale his due. Mr. Herman of Herman's Head. Also from <laughs> Mannequin 2 on the move. Oof. Yeah. When you can't get Andrew McCarthy, <laughs> call William Ragsdale. Because he's even more bland. He was not the problem with that movie. Yeah. Look, I'm going to say it. I saw Mannequin 2 on the move, and he was not the problem with the movie. I saw it. Me too. We're three for three on Mannequin 2. <laughs> yeah. He, he was not the problem with that movie. It was the script and a whole bunch of other problems, but he did fine with what he had. I watched Herman's Head for whenever it was on. I really liked it. Oh, so did I. Uh, I'm embarrassed to say it, but I did. I really liked it. And here I thought Arnie was right again about his role in this movie. He's kind of playing the straight man into everyone's having a lot more fun than he gets to have. But I think he balanced the line pretty well. I actually liked him in this movie. I felt he's playing some of the similar notes here and there time and again but honestly overall i felt he was a solid foundation for everything else that was going on in this movie and this movie needed that maybe you needed him i did find him dull i did feel like i said he's the one person in this movie i wasn't paying any attention to you got all these other hams here so maybe you're just going to lose him but to me he's about as useful as zach galligan and gremlins i mean he's just he's a dude you know he's just a dude and he projects the sexual frustration the virginity that wants to be lost all of that but he's as good as he needs to be but i wouldn't say that he's ever the dominating focal point in any scene he's in what's funny is for me i always related heavily to the evil ed character and so for me he was like so many of my friends you know off with their girlfriends you know interested in the same kind of stuff i was but also having a lot more going on but watching it this time there's a few things that just make me wonder if charlie's mentally deficient and one of them is of course we talked about this he goes to ed for advice when obviously he should know vampires and the second one is he goes to a movie star and asks him to help him kill a vampire as if those movies were real (laughs) And, you know, by the time you're old enough to have sex, you should be old enough to know actors are paid to act. The Three Amigos comes to mind. But who are the real-world experts that you call when you have a vampire living next door? It was the closest to a professional he could call. I mean, there were no Ghostbusters, so he had to call (laughs) the vampire killer. And maybe he knew in his head that he had never really killed any vampires before, but he knew also that the guy had the tools and the moxie to pull it off in real life if it needed to be. This is a good segue to Peter Vincent, but my one other question is, is this in L.A.? I don't know where 
where this is happening, because on one hand, it's small-town America, but on the other hand, you have this television studio shooting and a semi-big star, at least a fallen star, is living there. It's Southern California, and it might be the outer suburbs of Los Angeles. I don't think it's L.A. proper. Okay, because the TV station with the movie star kind of threw me, because for the rest of this movie, it is so suburban. And I think this movie has such a great sense of place when you're in Charlie's house and when you're in Jerry's neighborhood and all of this that's going on. It feels so right. But a couple times you leave the neighborhood, you go to see Peter Vincent at his job, or you go to a dance club, we'll get there, and that movie starts to feel like it's lost its way when it leaves the neighborhood. It's not small-town America anymore, I agree. Mm. I thought it was a backlot, though, for a few scenes. Oh, it obviously was a backlot. Yeah. But that's usually when they leave the neighborhood. That's when it feels like a backlot to me when they go to the alleys. But we'll get there. First, we have to be introduced to Peter Vincent, vampire killer. We talked about Campy earlier and how Chris Serenin really was able to balance it very well. I thought Roddy McDowell overall did okay with it, but there were certain scenes where I thought he was going a little over the top for what we were doing in this movie. So I was lukewarm on him. I was really curious why they gave him the wig, but then powdered it gray so poorly. I was wondering why just give him a better a better wig. I thought it was his real hair and like they put plaster dust in it or something. It was just weird. It, it's, it looked like a giant wig, like what I would put in my hair to gray my hair for Halloween, you know? So it was really weird. But I was kind of lukewarm here. At certain scenes, I really, really liked him. And other scenes, he kind of was rubbing me the wrong way. What did you guys think of Roddy McDowell in this role? Well, you know, he's the wash-up, the pretentious. It's the character I've seen a lot of in movies. What I thought was a surprise was they didn't make him a drunk. Typically, I think in Mm. movies like this, he would be fallen that far. But for whatever reason, he is just mild-mannered. You know, he is just a fraidy cat. They don't have him be a drunk. They don't have him be mean or anything. I definitely feel like there needed to be a character to be this big. What may be the wrong choice is that he ends up stealing the entire movie. I do feel like as the movie goes along, Charlie's character arc falls away and it really becomes about Peter learning that there are vampires, learning to believe in what he's play-acted all his life, and defeating a vampire. I mean, Charlie does less as the movie goes along. I completely agree with that, and I think we'll get there in the third act. But I like Peter Vincent. I like his bravado. And Roddy McDowell's performance in this is so great as a counterpoint to Chris Sarandon. Because Chris Sarandon, we talked about how he could switch from malevolent to charming. Well, Peter Vincent, I like how he can have this bravado, but at the same time, he's like, I've got to go to Hollywood and make movies. Hollywood is calling. $500? I'll do it. (laughs) I know a lot of actors that are like that out (laughs) here. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) He kind of reminds me a little bit. I know the movie came out the same summer and and no one's copying anybody, but I'm getting a lot of like Christopher Lloyd in this kind of back to the future way. You know, I feel like he does a lot for this movie in the same way that Christopher Lloyd did for Back to the Future. He is the biggest beacon of light in a movie filled with colorful characters. He is the one that's going to shout loudest and draw your attention the most. And you didn't think that was distracting at all? Like I said, it just took the focus away from who's ostensibly our hero. But is it a problem? It's not a problem, because I do like the character. It doesn't halt the movie for me. It's just certain scenes, I thought he was going really big, And yes, it's a big character, but he even went big for the character he was portraying, I thought. That's what I meant by it. To me, I never really felt like he stole anything from Brewster, but I guess I see this more of as like a buddy cop kind of thing, you know? The Mm. the mismatched pair, the old washed-up actor, the young kid. 
cop and a half, vampire killer and a half, you know? So to me, they're co-stars. Wow. Um, it, I didn't get cop and a half off this, but I hear what you're <laughs> saying. It is partners in crime. It is two mismatched pairs going against impossible odds. It's a typical 80s scenario, and yeah, I like the pairing. I just kind of wish Ragsdale was a little bit stronger as a character to compete. But he's kind of our straight character because everybody else here is so over the top. Everybody. I mean, let's talk about Charlie's best friend, Evil Ed, if you want to talk over the top. They call him a best friend, but I don't know. At the same time, it feels like a friendship that's not really forged in mutual respect at any rate. Why are they friends? I feel like Ed gets a lot of kicks out of ridiculing Charlie and his girlfriend problems and cackling in his odd sort of way. I I don't know. Is Ed his friend? I would say, yeah. I mean, he only tells him the vampire knowledge because Charlie gives him eight bucks. Yeah, but Stuart, you and I kind of had that relationship <laughs> as a kid. I remember. All right, maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. I've had relationships with this with other guys where, like, you you make jabs at each other, and it wasn't one sided. Ed hated being called evil, and that's what Charlie would do. He kept calling him evil, and so Ed would get his comeuppance wherever he could. You know, sometimes you have these antagonistic male bonding relationships, but I definitely think they're friends. If they weren't friends, Ed wouldn't go through what he goes through trying to get Peter Vincent so that Charlie doesn't go over and kill the neighbor. Also, I think he would have given him the information from the performance that I saw from this actor in that scene, he would have given the information without even the $8. Probably. But Charlie offered him 8 bucks, and he said, okay, fine, 8 bucks, I'll take that. Let's talk about that performance, Stephen Jeffries. Now, I actually had seen him before this in Heaven Help Us, and I liked his energy there. Here, his every line reading is counterintuitive to me. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's a great word for it. It's not what you would expect. He's not what you would expect. I can't imagine how joyous the director must have been each time that they did a take and he realized wow this guy is so much better than the part that we wrote he's just he (laughs) makes this so much fun it's the shame of the movie that i never saw him again you know what i take it back i did see one other work of his nine seven six evil oh yes nine seven six evil we'll actually talk about that more in the fright night 2 podcast i i'd seen that as well well you know what happened to him right uh, he became a gay porn actor. I read that in Wiki. <laughs> yes, I, I didn't hear that, but I did read that on Wikipedia. I am proud to say, I, I suppose I'm proud to say, I knew he was doing gay porn long before researching this podcast. I don't know how I knew this, but I found it out like in the early 2000s when I was researching whatever happened to this guy and before Wiki. And it turned out I accidentally saw more of him than I needed to see. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, Stephen Jeffries, a.k.a. Sam Ritter, was in Butt Blazer and Cockpit. and <laughs> Yep. <laughs> <laughs> what I want to know, does he do the voice in all of it? Like, <laughs> like, or, or did he do an effective butch thing? Like, I'm just wondering, is he always this strange? Like, because I have no other real reference for him. I'm just wondering, does the guy always act like this? Or is this the greatest performance ever put to film? Like, I can't tell. He does act like this in 976 Evil. And he is quite a bit like this also in Heaven Help Us, which is that it's the voice, you know? And after his voice changed, and he's actually gone back to doing, you know, regular cinema or direct-to-video horror stuff. But during this period, with that cracky, high-pitched voice, mixed with that strangely muscular body... (laughs) 
It worked very well. I liked him a lot in this movie, and you said Chris Durandon stole the movie, but I don't know. You got Peter, and you got this guy. I feel like the three of them are the movie, and Ed is a great character, not on paper, but as realized by Stephen Jeffries. There's just so much he does here with this. I mean, later on, he's wearing like this raggedy Ann wig. <laughs> It's great. I, I do love Ed in this movie. But yeah, he was my relatable character. When I quote this movie, I quote Ed. And I guess that leaves our only other character and fellow Fox alum to William Ragsdale, <laughs> yes. Amanda Bierce. Married with children. Yeah, I, I've yeah. seen her since. And boy, knowing her from Married with Children, you wouldn't think of her as being the object of anyone's long-standing desire. But she's kind of ordinary. In that respect, she's paired well with Charlie. But watching it this time, I had a revelation about what they were doing with her. And it shocked me. Her haircut, the way that she looks, everything that she's directed to do, the character she's playing, the innocent she's playing that's turned vampire, is identical to Susan Sarandon in The Hunger. Did you guys ever see that movie? No. Not for a long time. Yeah, Tony Scott, right before he made Top Gun and became this big Hollywood director, he made this little weird, arty, lesbian vampire movie where Susan Sarandon is preyed upon by Catherine Deneuve, who has just dumped David Bowie off in a box in the attic, and they have lots of kind of... Talk about kinky. The movie's very stylish and very out there. And I thought, how weird to continue the key thing to make this girl look like Susan Sarandon and then make Chris Sarandon <laughs> fall in love with her. I'm like, wow, that must have been a very interesting set. But the parallels are identical. I, I Go back to The Hunger. Look at the way that Susan looks in that movie. That's what Amanda Bierce is in this movie. She's doing the Susan Sarandon. I liked her in this movie fine. I thought she was a little bland vanilla here and there. But when we get to the dance floor scene there, I kind of saw what she was doing in the beginning of the movie because on that dance floor when she was getting seduced, there was differences. So you kind of appreciate a little bit more what she was doing in the beginning that was so bland and we've seen that before. So it might have been very much on purpose. Maybe I'm giving her too much credit, but I did think that she did bring something that maybe is a little bit underappreciated because the role was so bland vanilla. I think you are giving her too much credit. I love her in the dance floor scene. I mm. think her performance there with her eyes and her face and her body work mostly well with the exception of that bad no reflection dance moment which is hysterical yes, it's very but bad yes <laughs> for the rest of the movie whether she's vamping out at the end or a whiny bitch at the beginning i hate her <laughs> i just do not like her i don't like what she does with this character and when you see like Stewart said things like chris sarandon bringing more to the character stephen jeffries for crying out loud bringing more to the character she could have done something to make this character more than just the whiny stereotype she is, and she didn't. And I don't know what she could have done, but obviously I wouldn't necessarily have given Stephen Jeffries the advice to give his line deliveries either. So sure. there's something else that could have been done to make her more interesting and to give her more to it, maybe a little bit more anxiety about why she's a virgin. Or, hell, knowing what I know about Amanda Bierce, make her a lesbian who's trying to come to terms with it. That's why she won't sleep with Charlie. There's a lot of things that could be done with this character that weren't. I don't have a problem with mostly how she's used, but I thought it was a really weird choice. They go back on that old cliche about how she reminds the vampire of some long lost whatever. 
Does that pay out for you guys? Because I don't really even understand what that means. Is it just coincidence that he reminds her of the girl in the painting? Or is she a reincarnation? Or what? Alright, now we're going to get into the stuff that I and my friends talked about and analyzed to Helen back in the 80s. Because I have answers that we made up for all of this. (laughs) But this is straight out of Dracula, right? Where Nina Nina, is the resurrection or the reincarnation of his former love. And I think they are just taking that right out of Dracula. You know, that Dracula is the vampire. He's the superstar of all vampires, no matter what Lestat says. And so I think that they're just taking that right out of Dracula and it's either a striking resemblance or a reincarnation. But for whatever reason, Chris Sarandon's characters lived long enough to finally come across someone who looks strikingly identical and whether it's the same soul or just the same look i went with it because of the dracula you know i'd seen dracula in my very young childhood it just became second nature so taking a plot point straight out of dracula made sense to me it also makes sense because it's a vampire movie if you're gonna crib from anything you might as well crib from there and didn't they do that exact same thing in love at first bite <laughs> i think it was that the model was the reincarnation no no it's a long-standing stereotype and you're right to call it out from dracula but i guess what i'm wondering what i'm really getting at is isn't she just too damn plain to paint a portrait of (laughs) is this really the kind of girl you would think about 200 years later maybe she was the best lady he ever had dude we have no idea well we don't because we don't get that from amanda beer she projects normalcy Mm -hmm. and naivete and i get that from her and i like that quality from her in that respect but if she's supposed to be some alluring presence that you'd never forget Come on. By the same token, I don't get the Jerry loves her and really the whole thing is, you know, the Dracula love at first fight thing where he wants to be with her forever. It's more like, you know, when he has that scene with Billy after she leaves, he's like, the resemblance is striking. And then he bites her and then he gives Charlie a stake and says, go at it, kill her. So I don't think this was like some great love. It's why he has the painting. I don't know. Also, she's a teenager. This guy's lived for hundreds of years. We talked about this when we reviewed Twilight. Not the three of us. I reviewed Twilight. Check the archive section. Alicia and I review that for Now Playing early in the days of Now Playing. And we had the same conversation. Why on earth would a hundred-year-old vampire fall for a teenager? I got him falling for her as just a ploy to taunt Charlie, especially at the end, turning into a vampire, to turn her into something that against Charlie that Charlie would have to kill. That's all I got from that. If it wasn't for the painting, I'd go with you, Brock. Right. But that painting mm-hmm. changes it. I'm with you on that. He seduces her on the dance floor with the vampire pheromones, so clearly he could have this woman and make her into the woman he wants. I think the turning scene is fairly erotically charged. I mean, we don't get a sex scene in this movie. There's a lot of coitus interruptus, but that moment where he finally puts the fangs in her neck and the blood is dripping down her naked back, and she's moaning, I mean, it really does feel erotic in the classic vampire way. I feel like that's kind of hot, actually. He took her virginity. I mean, let's face it, that was a taking a virginity scene. Absolutely. The bleeding, the moaning. By the time Charlie got her, he was now having sloppy seconds from Jerry. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Yes. Agreed. Jerry is the man that Charlie wishes he could be, minus the fangs. You know, that's the thing, is that he wishes that he could be this guy. And who knows, maybe he wishes in some level he was a vampire as well. But yes, Jerry is able to get where Charlie never could. And that's the thing with vampires. I always liked vampires, as we were talking about earlier. I was always watching vampire movies, be it this or Once Bitten. This I got to a little bit late. But that is what is alluring about the vampires, right? You said, Brock, 
Doc, I forget the term you used for his, his pheromones, but yeah, vampires have the ability to hold their victims in thrall. That's the term I've always heard used is thrall, where they're just so taken by the charisma of the vampire. And that is why, strangely, again, it's, I wouldn't expect it, but Chris Sarandon's so good. And we talk about the dance floor scene obliquely a few times, but that's the scene where, you know, Charlie and Amy are trying to run from Jerry and Jerry's there and he just pulls her out with his power is charisma and on the dance floor changes her from the virginal watch vincent price charlie to this sexually charged being yeah Mm -hmm. yeah i mean look at her hair for the rest of this movie she does not look like she did at the start of this movie like i said she started it looking like susan sarandon and she ends up looking like tawny (laughs) katane I gotta say, after the vampire changing, I thought it was a different actress for about 20 years because of the hair and the contacts and the fake boobs. I thought it was not Amanda Beers. I thought, like, she was sick for two weeks of shooting and they brought in a double. It's a good look for her. She could get bitten by a vampire more often. And more movies, too. Out of the blue. (laughs) (laughs) Or married with children. Special Halloween episode. So she gets turned into a vampire, and that's pretty much done in it, right? The first time I saw this movie, I never thought that they could, like, turn her back. Well, this movie has some novel, yet we talk about the ways that it emulates Dracula and plays into cliches, but it has some novel takes on the vampire, and it's not just the special effects makeup. I feel like when Ed is breaking down some of the rules, these are things I've never quite heard before. Sure, we know a crucifix wards off a vampire, but the idea that you have to have total faith in it in order for it to work, this feels like a new development. You agree? Yes. That was the first time I'd ever seen it used like this. And really, I hate to say it, but as America becomes a more and more diverse and somewhat secular society, the crucifix kind of is an old-fashioned way of warding off evil, right? I mean, you're no longer trying to ward off Satan, per se. And so the crucifix, and it adds so many things. I think it was uh, in Love at First Bite, where the psychologist brings out the Star of David and (laughs) tries to ward (laughs) off the vampire. So. In the 80s and beyond, we kind of can laugh at that kind of religious iconography having power. Putting faith behind it is a great twist where you can leave it in the mythology, where so many other things just go, oh, that's in the movies, crosses don't really work. But to be able to keep it as part of it and give faith a reason, you know, to actually reinforce the whole point of religion, which is faith in the supernatural to some degree. I love it. I just love it. I remember crapping my pants in the movie theater (laughs) at the scene where Peter brandishes the crucifix and's back, back, and is, you know, caught up in a scene in his own movie, and Jerry just laughs and takes those giant talon fingers of his and crushes it, and it's like, no, that's not going to work. You have to believe in it. It's a great twist on this, because suddenly it, it puts it on you. You can't just go buy something and protect yourself. It has to come from internal belief. More dangerous. One other thing is, you know, with the changing of Amy into a vampire, I noticed that she had at least two sets of bites. Are they going with the love at first bite, three bite turn rule? I didn't understand that either. I didn't notice two bites. I thought she only had one. I thought you had to do it on different nights. I definitely thought that was part of the rule. You couldn't, like, bite, bite, bite. (laughs) Yeah, what's the point of that if you're Pac-Man the vampire? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, most of the second half of the movie is one single night, and she goes from never being bitten to being an undead. So I I feel like they're playing their own rules there. I do feel like the idea that she can change back 
into being a human if he's defeated in the course of the night she's bitten is a device of the screenwriters, and a good one. I think it's effective for this story. But here's the problem that brings up. If she can turn back, why can't Ed turn back? Another big one I never heard before. A vampire can't enter your house unless they're invited by the owner. You've never heard that before? That's right out of Dracula. Yeah, it's one of those things that is... I think still in every vampire thing today, right? It's the one rule or one of the only rules that still stays by. Buffy the Vampire Slayer uses the death. Which is highly influenced by this movie. And, ironically, the remake's being made by the head of Buffy, but we'll get to that with the remake. But no, the inviting a vampire in has always been a part of the lore that I've known. Me too. I honestly had never heard of this until I saw it. It was new to me when it came to vampires. I knew about garlic. I knew about holy water. I had never heard that. This didn't originate it, but I like how they use it here. I like that, again, like so many of Chris Saranda's lines, when Charlie comes home and he's in the kitchen with the mother, he's like, now that she's invited me over, I'll stop by anytime. She loves it because she's like, oh, a man in the house. <laughs> yeah, you bet. <laughs> and a hot one at that, yeah. The last rule that I'd never really thought of but makes perfect sense to me is a pencil as a wooden stake. Because after Jerry's invited in, he comes in and torments Charlie and Charlie fends him off with a pencil. I love that. But he stabs him in the hand, right? But it's a wooden stake. I mean, it, it doesn't kill him, but it hurts like hell. Yeah, it allows him to show his game face. Up to that point, he's been all cool-looking Chris Sarandon. Now he's looking like, well, he spent some time in Rick Baker's shop. What do you guys think of the makeup effects in this movie? Oh, I hate them. I don't like them either. I gotta say, that's the weak point, is when they are vamped out, I don't like the look, and I don't like the voice. It sounds like they didn't loop anything. Like, he's actually trying to talk through the makeup, and maybe he is. <laughs> he's talking through those fangs. I agree. He's talking through something in his mouth. Yeah. yeah. Now, wait a second. Now, I thought they went back and did some ADR on it, because I thought he was pretty clear. I clearly saw him doing the lines with the teeth in his mouth, but he was so clear, I'm like, he must have gone back and dubbed that. Kill for me, Amy. I just, oh, he loses what made him cool when he vamps out. Mm, I, I didn't hear that, uh, because I did see him with a mouthful of teeth and it looked like there's no way he could say the words that he's saying with a mouthful of teeth like that. But he certainly doesn't sound like himself either. It sounds like somebody with a malformed mouth would speak. And it's too makeup-y. It's too much. I mean, I like that they tried to make vampires monstrous, and I cannot think of a time in written fiction or cinema that vampires were hideous before. They've always been the Count Dracula George Hamilton, right? They have two fangs and a little pale. We grew up with a idea of what Dracula looks like with the cape, with the little medallion. And two little fangs. And that crow's peak, everything he's talking about is the universal monster version of Dracula is what I think of Dracula is. Grandpa Munster. But here, I know by the time we get to Lost Boys and things, that are hideous monsters, but this may be the first time that when in vamp mode, you're no longer sexy. No, it definitely is. Like I said, they're bringing in makeup effects. Now, I agree with you. The makeup has dated, and I thought this stuff was incredibly great looking at the time. Now... Not so much. But I still feel like it works. I mean, I feel like, given that I'm watching an 80s movie anyway, there's no getting away from that. The hair, the fashion, all of that. I like Amanda Beer's final transformation, where her entire mouth is like one giant smiling fang. I feel like that's still effective when she turns around. I goes up thinking of Smilex and Batman with her jaw like that. But I did like how animalistic all the vampires became. I thought that was a really great idea. But I'm right there with Arnie on about how the makeup just seemed like makeup as opposed to real animals. But it was really kind of a great idea. 
idea. But I have to defend this movie from my childhood self. In the 80s, I didn't notice. I just loved it. Sure. No, it was great. At the time, it was the height of what they could do. Sure, you could tell some of it was fake when Evil Ed changed back or whatever. It didn't change the fact that it was absolutely terrifying. These effects absolutely terrified me. When Amy turns around and she has that face, it freaked me out. I think it's her face that's on that poster. It is. I didn't notice it until this time. She's the Fright Night face in the cloud. And what's great is it looks so nothing like her that you can walk in and still not know she turns into a vampire. Mm-hmm. You're right. Well, before Amy transforms, Charlie loses his other girlfriend, Ed. And I have to say, I'm with Ed. Take the bite. Be the vampire. It seems like the cooler way to go for Ed. It's weird because the one thing that doesn't make sense for me and Ed is that he is the cynical one. He is the one to not buy into this. Does that really make any sense? Shouldn't he be more like Charlie? Shouldn't he be, as the weird outcast, more of a believer? Stuart, you were talking earlier about how many horror films you consumed, and I know you read Fangoria with me. If I came to you and said I'm living next door to a vampire, would you immediately buy it? (laughs) (laughs) Touche, sir. (laughs) That said, if the offer was presented realistically to him, of course he's going to take it. I mean, it's really his performance and his tears and the scene that make us understand. We've had no scene to establish that he's a misfit in school. We could probably guess that he is, because look at the guy. But when he's crying, and when Chris Sarandon is able to sum up his life in a look and say, they'll all go away, I can make it go away, we suddenly realize the hell that he was living. And yeah, I I feel like it's a great humanizing moment, and a strangely tender one. In a movie that doesn't have too many actual tender scenes, this may be the most raw. I agree, and it's hard for me to dissect Ed, but this is the scene where he's like, they'll never pick on you again. They'll never laugh at you again. And I love this line earlier, where this is kind of hinted at when they're doing the vampire test, and Jerry says, Ed, I'm sure we have a lot of similar interests in horror movies and the occult. You know, it's like Jerry sees a kindred spirit. Maybe he was picked on in, you know, the 10th century. Why does he change Ed? I understand why Ed would take the bite. Why do you think Jerry spends his time concerning himself with Ed. I do think there was the kindred spirit there. I think the the line earlier, it's just one line, but we have similar interests. I think Jerry thinks this guy could be kind of fun to hang around with, and hey, if it helps torment Charlie, so much the better. That's what I got mostly out of it. Yeah. It's just the Charlie tormenting thing. The uh, kindred spirit stuff was certainly in there. I think I didn't get that as heavy as you guys did. I've only seen this movie one time for this podcast, so now you're mentioning it, that certainly does make sense, Arnie, but I got it purely to, he's screwing with Charlie. Plus, honestly, at this point, he's got multiple targets, and I guess Billy's just not up to the task of hunting. He needs somebody else. Now, Ed does turn pretty quickly, but also he's willing. Maybe that has something to do with it, whereas Amy's resisting. Ed wants it. She incubates for a while. He seemed to turn pretty quick. So they need one line to explain that to me, because that's a big question mark I had about the rules of the movie. I'm going to say they didn't need that line, because there's something I like about this movie. They're not so concerned with the rules. <laughs> and they just take and pick what they want, and it's got such a great energy and such a great spirit to it. Yes, I agree with that. I don't think I need that line. Later on, when 
Ed turns into a werewolf, I don't need a line to know why he's a werewolf instead of just a vampire bat. I don't need that. I just kind of go with, it's magical, and because of the energy of the movie and the fun of the movie, I just take that ride. And again, Dracula, they do have wolves, and Peter does say that he's fought vampires in all their forms, including wolves, so they tip their hat in in little ways. I don't feel like it comes way out of the blue, but it probably will throw you if you're more used to the traditional vampire. I, I had no problem with the werewolf vampire. Not at all. A couple of things here and there I was sh- scratching my head about. It did not take away from the enjoyment of the movie because I was so into this movie, Arnie. Everything you said was true, but I still can add questions on why is it here different than over there. It, it certainly is legitimate to ask those questions. It is, but I'm just saying this movie had me so in that I didn't stop to question the rules. When I'm sitting there and questioning the rules is when the movie's starting to fail me. Yeah, I'm usually I'm in the same place you are, but the f- best thing about this movie, Arnie, is that you think about it and then something else happens that you're quickly distracted mm-hmm. again. And while Ed goes off to fight Peter Vincent, we go to that dance club. We've talked about the dance, but Stuart, you mentioned how this was 80s makeup. This is the only scene where I feel this movie dates really poorly isn't <laughs> the dance club. I agree. It's an awkward scene. It needs to happen. There needs to be a seduction of Amy. But to that song in that club, I don't know. It's awkward, right? And with Jerry in that sweatshirt. (laughs) I know. He changes outfits. He has been running around with a scarf and a coat and all that. And now he's like, I'm in my casual attire with the <laughs> he's clubbing yeah he is definitely in clubbing clothes and of course it's always funny to look back when other decades and what they thought of was sexy but that was sexy <laughs> damn i don't know about you guys but wearing that kind of sweater to a dance club you're just gonna get hot <laughs> it cannot be comfortable to gyrate not that he was you know no. really breaking a sweat but, but i love the music of this i know it doesn't fit the movie but man do i love these songs and i groove to them anytime i get a chance i think more than the songs, which are, well, they are what they are, I think the score is so effective. Oh, dear Lord. I want to give a shout out to Fred Fidel. He also did the very famous Terminator score. Mm-hmm. Dun, 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 dun. That stuff, he had just done it the previous year. So I like this guy. He really knows how to get a hook in. And that, I mean, just, it's awesome. With a synthesizer and a fake bass guitar and a little bit of sax, we so get this world. And he so captured everything in this horror comedy. I agree. I love that. The title of that track's Come to Me, and it's the standard Jerry Dandridge theme. But the whole score beginning to end is so perfect and unlike terminator which i think that we kind of made fun of in our terminator podcast this holds up it really does not feel very dated unlike say the jay giles band i completely agree with you i knew it was 80s synth but i didn't care at all i thought it worked perfectly i'm in agreement with you guys 100 percent on the score honestly i forgot how much i loved it till i watched it this time and just how effective it is and my favorite use of it is right after the dance club when Jerry bites Amy. And it hits that huge crescendo right as she moans. Mm-hmm. Oh, With just, the guitar, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it, they've assigned the right instruments to the right things. I mean, 80s scores, they are of their time, and I don't feel like they always translate beyond that. But this one really works. I hope that in some way they're able to use it for the remake. We'll see. I dare think that's hoping for too much, but I would just love it if they actually considered that a hero's theme. It does come back a little in the sequel. It's the same Brad Fidel for the sequel, but I don't think it works as well as it does here. Here, it's just, oh, it's it's perfect. It is perfect. 
And I very rarely say that about anything in any of the movies we review. What's not perfect is after the dance club, after Amy's bitten, Peter and Charlie go to face off against Jerry. And Stuart, you've alluded to this earlier. For me, this time, watching it with a critical eye, this is where the movie starts to fall apart and it loses my interest here. This final battle, which should be so exciting and so amazing, I think they drag it out a little too long. You know, Peter fights Ed once in Peter's apartment and kind of sends Ed scurrying. Then they fight again in Charlie's house, so it's round two, and he stakes Ed. Didn't you love the burned cross in his forehead, Oh, though? that's great. I just, oh, yeah. I, awesome. I really feel like Ed is sort of the model, obviously the geekier version, but the model for Kiefer and what they did for him with the spiked hair and all of that in Lost Boys. I can see that. I could definitely see that. Lost Boys takes so much from this. I was about to say, I feel like Lost Boys takes a lot from Fright Night. The whole comedy, horror, vampire element. I definitely feel like it was playing catch-up. And the fact that, I mean, in Lost Boys, they called out, it was something Jacob and Marjorie and I repeatedly called out in our retrospective for Lost Boys, is no two vampires die the same. Here, no two vampires die the same either. And with Ed going out, he goes out in wolf mode and transforms to what I imagine is Stephen Jeffrey's first but not last full nude scene in a film. <laughs> well, we talked earlier about how the makeup effects were dated. I thought a lot of the makeup effects in this transformation, as he was dying, he was transforming back into a human. I thought a lot of it really worked. I thought when the head of the wolf looked at the camera, it really looked bad. But when he was wailing in pain and looking up to the sky or looking to the side and all of that, I thought it really, really worked and it was very, very effective and you felt the pain. They did linger a long time on it, but for the most part, I felt it really was a, a strong scene. I didn't mind the makeup here at all. I didn't mind the transformation effects. I didn't think it was as good as American Werewolf in London. I didn't even think it was as good as Thriller, but I thought it was good. What I didn't like was when the poor stuffed animal was kind of crawling along the floor. Yes. Oh, I like all of this, guys. I, I think you're being a little too hard. I mean, despite the limitations of the actual robotics, I feel like this is the other really tender scene in this movie, that his death and his tears, I don't know, there's just something about Stephen Jeffries that he can just turn it on and all of a sudden we have real empathy for him, even though he's done these horrible things. And what has he done to the mom? Because he's put on the Raggedy Ann yarn wig and dressed up like her to be in bed and Peter Vincent stumbles in there in fear and he's told that dinner is in the oven. Yes, exactly. That she's gone out, that she's working nights is all that's said. Is that because she actually is all of a sudden have a night job that we've never seen her have before? Yes. It was a line dropped early in the film is that she's moved to the 3 a.m. shift. Really early in the movie. Oh, yeah. okay. I, because every time I've seen this, I thought that was code for I've bitten her and she's now out searching for blood. No, it was really great when he dropped the line early in the movie. I'm like, well, that's how they get rid of the mom. <laughs> I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was a brilliant single line takes care of any problem you have with the mother character disappearing for the remainder of the movie, if you had any problem with it at mm. all. And anyway, it gives him a strange power in this because I'm like, ooh, what is about to happen? What has he done? And then to be dispatched by Peter with the, it's kind of convenient, the stairwell and all that, all of a sudden, it's gone from frightening to tender and tragic. I really do feel like, oh no, I don't want this one to go. You can kill the other ones, but not it. I agree with you, and we'll get there when we get there, but 
the fact that they bring Ed back for the last line of the film gave me so much hope. When I was looking forward to the sequel, I was looking forward to the return of Ed. When I watched 976 Evil, I was hoping for the return of Ed. Right. And, you know, there's a moment I remember being in the theater and everyone gasped when Peter pulls out the stake after he's staked in it. They're like, don't do that, because we had a feeling that would bring him back to life. So there's always hope. Is that what did it? I mean, that's what my friends and I all said, is it's because he removed the stake from the heart. Yeah, it's the only thing that we have to go on. And I got a tip for you, Arnie. We'll talk about it next time. But Ed did come back in the comics. I look forward to hearing that. and Maybe trying to track it down at one of the Comic-Cons I go to. Because while I think Chris Randon carries the movie, Ed has always been my favorite character. But he needed to die. He did. He was so evil. He needed this death. I mean, it's a vampire movie. You expect this to come. Who I wasn't sorry to see go and who we've just not talked about much was Billy Cole. Billy's a weird one. And I actually like this actor. I thought he did a great job in this role. The scene where the cop comes and they're like making fun of Charlie. I thought this guy had some great facial expressions. And I just I liked him throughout the movie. But. By the same token, he never does a whole lot, so we haven't talked about him. Yeah, he's functional. I mean, he is the one that puts the body in the bag and dumps it in the train yard after Jerry's finished with it. He is the living servant, if you will. He's the Renfield, I suppose, to Jerry's Dracula. Okay, I was confused, because we had no indication he was anything but human in the movie. And then when they kill him, and then he's at the bottom of the stairs, and he goes bolt upright, I thought that was really great. And then when they continue to kill him, he starts to ooze green slime or green yogurt or whatever that was. I didn't really understand. Like, Ectoplasm? Yeah, it was like, it was just <laughs> green. And so I didn't really understand what he was. Obviously, he's the undead, but what kind of undead? I didn't know. I've wondered that for 20 years, and the closest thing my friends and I could come up with back in the 80s was, he's a zombie. Me too. That's the only thing I could has to be a zombie. I like the mystery of that. I don't feel like I need to have a label. I thought <laughs> they make the case that he has to be human because we've seen him in the sunlight. And so we are disarmed. We do think that he's mortal and can be taken out. So to have this final extra bit in which he is supernatural as well. We know he's not a vampire because he doesn't have fangs. When the skull actually falls and we look at it, there's nothing monstrous about it. But he is not human and he's not a vampire. I don't know. Now, after 20 years of wondering, I have Tom Holland's answer as to what it is, but I don't like it. Oh, what is it? Tom Holland says... He is a vampire in transition. He's like halfway. He's not fully transformed yet. And how long will it take? Well, Tom didn't have an answer for that. But he is like somewhat turned. That's why it takes a stake in the heart to kill him. But not so turned where he has the bloodlust or can't go out in the sun. Nah, I don't like his answer. I prefer zombie. Uh, but again, then, that you, that's more fuel of the fire of than why there's Ed turns so quickly and the girl doesn't. There's many different variations, then? I don't get that. You want me to make something up? I mean, in Blade, they say it's where they first feed. So, I mean, I can make shit up if you want. <laughs> no, I'm not looking for answers like that. I'm just saying, I, 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 zombie works for me. More confusing to me is the fact that if Amy can turn back after her night of being turned by killing Jerry, why isn't that true of Ed? Is it because that he was more or less killed? I, I, I don't know. It's, it's gray, and these are yeah. really rewarding questions to ask. There aren't clean answers. And it all comes up in this last half hour, and I'm still with the movie through Ed's death and through Billy Cole's death, but after this, there's a little too much cat and mouse in this house. Mm. 
Charlie gets thrown in the room, and we see Amy turn, and then they're, like, all going in the room, out of the room. It almost becomes, like, a Benny Hill skit with vampires. There is a lot of stalling until the sun rises, and is the movie less scary now that we're dealing with a one-on-one with Jerry? It is less effective, I think. And we lost Chris Durandon. We got Makeup Boy. We got that bad voice. What I liked of the Chris Sarandon performance, gone here. That said, one of the things I love about the early scenes is how they infer his presence through the bat cam. And we've been waiting and waiting, you know, as he steps off a roof and swoops around the yard and all of that. We've been waiting to see him. We do need to see him as a bat. It needs to come. And you know what? I like it. I like the moment that he actually attacks Charlie and is biting the stake. I do too. I mean... Today, I see it as obvious puppet. When I was a kid, I saw it as an evil vampire. I loved it. I saw the string, I saw the puppet, and I didn't care. I thought it worked. I liked the scene. But yeah, I saw the string. So, you know, it's it's testament to the movie at this point that I'm still in it, too. Because usually for those things, Arnie and I have a field day. <laughs> but here, it's because the movie is good that you don't mind as much. And it comes after so much that does hold up. Billy Cole's death holds up so well with, you know, you called it pudding, but it's cool and it's grotesque and it, I didn't see the strings on it. It's an effect that I would have given if made today. Yes. So this coming when it did, I went with it completely. And especially I like how it happens. The sun comes up and Jerry has all those clocks and I love all those clocks. I grew up in a house with all those clocks, so I love that they actually had a purpose here, and that it was to warn him about daylight, and that's when he turns into the bath, and then escapes down to the basement. You would think, though, the alarm would go off at five to six. (laughs) Give him a little extra time. Well, maybe we're in spring, and it's getting daylight earlier and earlier. (laughs) (laughs) I do feel like some of this stuff in the basement is where it really goes on too long. This is the part where I'm like, just get it done. You know, the fight with Amy, although she looks great with the snarl, I just feel like... It's too much. It is too much. And, you know, we have to have the payout for the basement glasses, windows being painted black, and the sunlight. I I think I suspected that would be the ultimate way to get rid of him. But even that death, watching him melt down to the skeleton, I'm like, that's a good 30, 40 seconds here. Wow. But yeah. yeah, they're giving us bang for the buck. They're giving us the special effects. They're showing us what they can do. And what I love is that they stake him and he's so powerful that doesn't stop him. He gets bolt upright because when he's laying in the coffin and Peter's there with the stake, you figure that's the end. That's how Dracula ended. But here he gets up and is still flying around after a stake. You think he's invincible. What I also liked in the scene with the sunlight going through the windows is the humans stand in the sunlight to protect themselves. I love that little touch. It makes so much sense. The people are smart, albeit they're going after a vampire at night, but... Well, they had to save Amy. Uh, yeah, I know. They explain that, and that's why it works. But it's still really clever that they thought of that. And that makes me happy that they thought of that. I love everything they do. I just wish there was a little less cat and mouse before getting to the basement and a little less Amy in the basement. Amy was very effective when Charlie was locked in a room with her and she was transforming. Mm -hmm. And every time you see her, she's a little bit more grotesque. But a little less Amy in the basement, a little less Jerry upstairs, and you would have had just absolute perfection. And I think I loved it as a kid because it was the action-y part. And as a kid, that was more what I was in for. As an adult, this is the part this time that I was, it started to lose my interest. I knew that they'd win. I didn't need it to go on. Five minutes shorter would have been a huge amount. 
It's a long movie for a horror movie. Typically, you want to come in, particularly in this decade, at around 90 minutes, and they're close to clocking in at two hours with Fright Night. It's a long time to sustain the mood. But they almost do it, I agree. This right at the end feels at least five minutes too much. But we wanted a big blowout, and we certainly got it. One last thing about Jerry's death is, as he dies, he says, Amy! So that goes back to, was that the love of his life? It, it, it's kind of ill-defined there. Mm. I like what you brought up with Dracula. I feel like they could have developed that more. I feel like if they were going to go that route, they should have talked about who Amy was to him back in the day and not been so mysterious. But again, I think I just said this movie's two hours long. <laughs> Let's get to the end. <laughs> Let's let the kids have their moment and Peter can return to TV and Ed can return in the sequel or something. You're so cool, Brewster. You know, we saw him die a long time. And so they have the eyes and the voice at the end. I was like... We talked about that briefly already, but it seemed weird to me. You know, usually when you don't see someone die on screen, you know, he could come back or she can come back. This time we, we saw him die on screen, but it still was a very satisfying way to end the movie. He with the glowing eyes. Me and my pin pal knew the second that Peter Vincent pulled the stake out right. that that was going to undo the death. You know, every horror movie has got to have a final jolt. Yes. This is the one we want to see. This is the character we want to return to. I completely Jerry agree. Jerry is dead, and Billy is dead, and Amy is back to normal. But Ed, Ed needs to be a continuing force. My friends and I weren't so sure about that, Stuart, because at the end, we know we saw the eyes, right? But what were those eyes? And the voice, was that Ed actually saying it from outside the window, or were they just, you know, playing a line to start the song? You know, was it just a callback, since it was the exact same line he said earlier? We weren't sure. Oh, wow. You guys went all uber nerd on all of this. Well, maybe it was just the third vampire that was in the house that we never saw before. Oh, come on. It's Ed. We took it as the end scare. You know, we were Nightmare on Elm Street fans. It always ends with Freddy giving some little thing. We weren't sure, but we liked to think it was Ed because we wanted Ed back. Our love for Ed made us say it was Ed, but we weren't sure. So, Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend Fright Night? Stewart. I do recommend Fright Night. You know, I was a little nervous coming back. It's been a while since I've seen it. I knew some things were going to seem creaky and, and not work as well, but it's still good. And I definitely recommend it, particularly if you're consumed with vampire culture as we have it now, with True Blood, Vampire Diaries, Twilight, all the stuff that's out there now. It's got to be really fun to go back and see what's the start of the modern vampire film. You know, I feel like vampires couldn't have been uncooler. Maybe with Anne Rice in the books, it was still going. But in movies, they were a joke. They were Blackula. They were love at first bite. We couldn't take them seriously. Here, it's still a comedy, but we also took them seriously. And they were fierce. I think it's fun. And I think that anyone, whether you like comedy or horror, could appreciate Fright Night. Recommend. Arnie. Yeah, Stuart, I think that, yeah, for mainstream audiences, movie-going audiences, vampires were at a horrible spot in 85. I do think Tom Holland did his research on this. You mentioned Dan Rice. I think that the line when Jerry says he's going to give Charlie a choice is probably a call-out to the interview with the vampire novel. But as for the recommendation, I love this movie. I was also a little bit nervous going back to it, especially with pen in hand to review it for now playing and to try to pick it apart and to see how dated is it and where are the plot holes. And unfortunately, I just got sucked into the movie and realized what great performances there are in this movie by and large and how much these actors who really didn't go on to do a whole lot 
did such great work here. And the music, I've talked about it throughout, not just the score, but the pops music used in this is just so great. I remember in the 80s, I actually took my old tape recorder and put the microphone up to the TV speaker for the Jay Giles song so I could listen to it on my Walkman. So I love this movie through and through. I highly recommend it. Even if for me, it got a little labored at the end. It doesn't take away from any of the fun. Strong, strong recommend. And it almost concerns me that they're remaking it now that I've rewatched and realized how much I love this film. And I'm going to recommend it too. I had a great time watching this movie. This movie had pacing. This movie had an idea of what it was. This movie brought us along for the ride. I loved how they didn't take too much time in the beginning for him being curious, for him finding out the truth, for his friends coming around. They really kept it moving. They had a good humor to it. The performances are great. The music is great. We talked all about this already. This is just a fun movie to watch. And yeah, I had a few problems with it here and there, just like you two did. My problem is probably a little different than yours, but overall, this is something to watch and enjoy, and I absolutely recommend this one. I will watch this again. I'm really surprised that I hadn't heard it was a comedy until you two told me it was. <laughs> because, again, at Box, for all those years, I thought it was a scary movie, and I was so pleasantly surprised with this one, and I, I have high hopes for the next one. I hope it's as good. So if you enjoyed this show, please go to our archive section and check out other movies we have reviewed this year, our Marvel series, our massive Marvel series, of course. We also have the Marvel Misfits with Howard the Duck. That was great. We have Cowboys and Aliens. We have our reviews of Green Lantern. We have all sorts of different reviews. If you haven't already, subscribe to us on iTunes. You'll never miss an episode. And you can also find us on Twitter and on Facebook, where us hosts post many movie reviews of things we see that week here and there, as well as we have the conversations about movies with you, the listeners. There on Facebook and Twitter and in our forums. You can find a link to our forums on nowplayingpodcast.com. And if you like us, please check out the bottom right-hand corner of the homepage. You'll find a donate button there. You know, we do this of our own free will and... If you feel the mood overtake you, please, any little bit can help us keep the show on the air to pay for bandwidth and things like that. We would greatly appreciate it. It's why we're doing extra series like you guys are doing Final Destination. Indeed, if you enjoy that series, thank a donor because we were just so struck by those who donated for the bonus series of Jaws and Poltergeist last spring that we decided to put out a few more shows for everybody as our way of saying thank you for those who donated. And so we will return next week with a review of the hard-to-find Fright Night (laughs) 2. See you soon. You're out of time, Mr. Daddy. Thank you for listening to the now-playing Fright Night Retrospective Series. If only there had been a few more of you, perhaps my ratings would have been higher. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review another installment in the Fright Night series, leading up to a week of release review of the Fright Night remake. I thought I'd let the vampires rest for a little while. Right, Charlie. And in the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of other film series, such as Friday the 13th, Scream, The Lost Boys, Final Destination, Halloween, and many more. We also have individual movie reviews for films like Avatar, The Human Centipede, and Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. I expect we have a lot of the same interests, you know, in horror movies and the occult. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss these films with other listeners. Now that I've been made welcome, I'll probably drop by quite a bit. In fact, anytime I feel like it. 
You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. You know, like an orgy of the damned. Links to our social media pages are at nowplayingpodcast.com. That might also explain your fascination with low-grade melodramas. I am so proud of you. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. I have a $500 savings bond. I'll take it. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy Now Playing t-shirts, coffee mugs, mouse pads, and much more. The link to our Cafe Press store is available at our homepage. Come on, dude. (laughs) It's party time. The Now Playing Fright Night retrospective series is edited by Arnie. You might amuse yourself some other way. Bowling, perhaps. Bowling? Now Playing is not affiliated with DreamWorks or Columbia Pictures, and no infringement is intended. I mean, you're going to need all the help you can get, right? Somebody like Peter Vincent, for instance? The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media Incorporated. There. Satisfied? Totally. And you're finally convinced I'm not a vampire either, right? Yes. Well, I'm glad that's so. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2011, all rights reserved. We're all through for today. You could say that again, partner. See ya. Soon. And directed by Tom Holland. I want to say Savage Tom Holland, but it's a different guy. Oh, you're so cool, Brewster. <laughs> I can't stand it. What's bitten? You won't feel no pain, boy. Oh, you're so cool, Brewster. <laughs> I can't stand it. The fight continues throughout. <coughs> Excuse me, hold on. Yeah, people say they want unedited. Oh, you're so cool, Brewster. <laughs> I can't stand it. You know, the hmm. the mismatched pair, the old washed-up actor, the young kid, cop and a half, vampire killer and a half, you know? So to me, they're co-stars. Cop and a half? <laughs> what a reference. Burt <laughs> <laughs> Reynolds and a small black child? That yeah. cop and a half? This is like, what it's like pretty Turner and Hooch and Canine. And <laughs> I don't know. There's a reboot coming, guys, I'm sure of it. Mm-hmm. Oh, watch for that retrospective. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, um, it, I didn't get cop and a half off this, but I hear what you're saying. It is. Oh, you're so cool, Brewster. <laughs> I can't stand it. He became a gay porn actor. I read that in Wiki. Yes, yes me too. I, I didn't hear that, but I did read that on Wikipedia that he. Uh, you know what? I take it back. He, I did see one other work of his, <laughs> nine seven six E. Oh yes. Oh, uh, I thought you were gonna say, you know, bad boys in the bathroom or something. <laughs> I was wondering they're... if that's where it was going. <laughs> see. Oh, you're so cool, Brewster. <laughs> I can't stand it. Review Twilight. Not the three of us. I reviewed Twilight a couple of years ago. I never re- reviewed yeah. Twilight. I never Check seen the archive it. section. Alicia and I review that for now playing early in the days and now playing. Oh, you're so cool, Brewster. <laughs> I can't stand it. The vampires were hideous before. They've always been the Count Dracula, George Hamilton, right? They have two fangs and the little 
pale. When you say George Hamilton, you know you're talking about Love at First Bite, right? I do. I very much okay. do. Okay. All right. <laughs> I don't think of that as being a big vampire movie, but all right. It's his point of reference the entire episode. Uh, I know. Like, I just wanted to make sure you didn't think the 1979 Dracula was was George Hamilton. No, but, I knew that. But I, we grew, I grew up. Oh, you're so cool, Brewster. <laughs> I can't stand it. I grew up thinking of Smilex and Batman with a jaw like that. It was really obscure. Um, but I yes, did like <laughs> Smilex is fairly obscure. Yeah. Um, um, but no, but I. Oh, you're so cool, Brewster. <laughs> I can't stand it. But all right, here we were talking about Amy and the vagina dentata. Oh, you're so cool, Brewster. <laughs> I can't stand it. Jerry in that sweatshirt. If if it was I just off on his shoulder, it would be Jessica Biel, right? Or not Jessica Biel. <laughs> oh, you're so cool, Brewster. <laughs> I can't stand it. One, one. I had no idea what you were doing or where you were even coming in. I, I was like. This is at the very, very beginning. That information would have been helpful about yeah, two seconds ago. Because I'm, <laughs> I'm like, he just keeps saying frightening. <laughs> he likes the way it sounds. I like frightening, but I'm afraid to talk about frightening because frightening is kind of frightening in a frightening sort of way. All right, I, I get this is information I could have told you yesterday. All right, let's talk frightening. <laughs> oh, you're so cool, Brewster. <laughs> I can't stand it. All right, but Fright Night. Fright Night, Fright Night, Fright Night. Oh, you're so cool, Brewster. <laughs> I can't stand it.